everybody. Welcome back into Mining Stock Daily. Trevor Hall here, continuing to report from the beautiful city of Vancouver, where the sun is still shining and it's nice and cool. It's actually like 30 degrees cooler here uh, Fahrenheit in Vancouver than it is in my hometown of Denver, Colorado. Uh, and I'm sitting in just an incredibly beautiful office up in the Canaccord Genuity offices of Senior Investment Advisor, Mr. Cam Curry. Cam. Thank you for your hospitality and welcoming in on this early Thursday morning. Well, Trevor, thank you for coming in and uh, from your beautiful city of Denver and to our beautiful city of Vancouver. Yeah. And, and uh, looking forward to our call. I, I love it when the sun's shining in Vancouver. <laughs> Oftentimes it's not. Well, actually, this summer's been amazing, but uh, wintertime, we just go to the mountains and go skiing, so we're lucky, oh, yeah, as absolutely. you guys do too. So, um, You know, you've been on the podcast before, but that was more of kind of a quick market uh, update that we typically do. In, you know, within the middle of the week, and I'd really wanted to kind of open up the conversation. Um, you know, you are, uh, you've got a lot of experience and in intel in this sector, uh, in exploration and, and, and mining sector. And so I thought maybe let's start off by getting a general understanding of where you came from and how you got uh, to this position where you're at. I mean, did you always want to be a broker in the equity space? You know, it's so funny. I, as, as a kid growing up, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur and, uh, and, and look for opportunities. And, you know, the capital markets, I think, is a perfect venue to get into because there's no boundaries, no limits. And, uh, you know, what, really what you're doing is you're basically, you know, getting a pool of funds of people that invest in you, in your thesis, in your beliefs. And you can move that around 360. And uh, there's no boundaries as to who I deal with and what opportunities I look at. And, uh, and that freedom, I think, creates incredible opportunities. And it's a perpetual challenge, and uh, especially in the mining space because of it being a geopolitical uh, environment. And, uh, you know, we've all worked in jurisdictions that have been challenging. And uh, you go through cycles, and it's, it's, it's a constant game of chess and a Rubik's Cube in a lot of ways. But if you can get it right, uh, it's very, very rewarding. So how did you jump into the mining and exploration space? I mean, what was it? How did how did your thesis and your outlook on the inner workings of the world and economics of the world kind of how was that shaped in and in, in informed your thesis? Well, you have to go back in the history of Canaccord Genuity. Uh, Canaccord was a previous company founded by Peter Brown, who was a great mentor to me. And um, I think um, Canada back then was very much a mining-oriented country. And uh, so the culture of the firm itself, with the leadership of Peter, it was an environment that you just kind of, it was part of your DNA wiring. And so getting entrenched in it that way was one aspect. But I think what really got me in, into it and really sunk me into it is um, in 2000, when we had, had the dot-com bubble unfolding, I saw the economic disparity between the, the values in, in, in tech equities and the, and the abandonment of value in, in the metals sector. And it was just such a compelling opportunity. And, uh, and nobody was paying attention. And uh, so that's really when I really started getting entrenched in making this, you know, my, my sector. Okay. So, I mean, it seems like, I mean, just on the cover, there's some very similarities to that bubble. 
23 years ago as there is now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, again, that's one reason why, you know, I, I'm out speaking on behalf of the sector more and more, because I just see such an incredible value proposition. You know, a number of my clients, you know, they have portfolios in other sectors and that. And two years ago, I was ringing the alarm bells about the, the bubble in the marketplace uh, from the liquidity of, the, of, of zero interest rates and the Fed stimulus, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, we were right. And, uh, and so I've protected a lot of people on their other investments that have gone down significantly. Now, the, the gold sector and the, and, the, and the base metal sectors, copper's been doing extremely well for us. We've had some great, great successes. And precious metals is completely under the radar still. And although gold's at 1950 right now, no one's paying attention to the equities. And that's why this kind of reminds me of 2002 when, you know, no one was paying attention to the gold equities and gold was at three, $350 an ounce. And all of a sudden, the U.S. dollar started its, its decline going into 2007. And we had one of the biggest moves in equities and gold equities we'd seen in, in, in decades. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell me, what, what makes now more uh, different than it was 23 years ago well we see this we talked about similarities that's obvious but what's different well the magnitude of the bubble that's been created and uh you you look at in just in the last 10 years for example since the great financial crisis you basically had an environment where interest rates were at zero uh, for a 10-year period and uh, what that brought on is a complacency of investor interest in in assets and so you create asset bubbles and uh, not only did you create asset bubbles, uh, because money was free, it enticed people to take greater leverage on free money to, uh, to basically invest in assets, which magnified the asset bubbles. And so you have two bad behaviors taking place, people overpaying for assets and over-leveraging to buy those assets. One of the things that I keep on pointing out to people right now is that money is no longer free. You look at what's happened in the last 14 months with interest rates. I mean, in Germany, for example, you've you had negative 0.5 yield on 10-year Bundes. Now it's 2.6%. And last month they just painted a double-digit decline in their real estate. Their PMI numbers are are, are showing recession. And so the environment right now is a, is a very heavy-weighted debt bubble, which has gone from 200 to 300 trillion dollars in 10 years, now sitting on asset prices. And I think. To a great extent, the Western world, especially our U.S. investors, aren't paying attention to the worries of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about the the bond market a little bit, and maybe mm-hmm. just focus on the U.S. Um, you know, that's you know the cream of the crop there. But you know, for forty years, there's been a bull market in bonds, and in in the last couple of years, that seems to obviously have changed. Uh, you know, a, a, a four and a half, or four to four and a half percent yield on a ten year still. I mean, there's there's growing concern out there, but it still isn't necessarily you're, you're seeing the effects of it uh, through the consumer here. I mean, I guess how much of a you know are you are you at odds with the bond market right now? Are you in competition with the bond market? I mean, with you're getting four and a half percent or even five percent on a six month CD, some places. How much of that capital is not going into this sector when you can get guaranteed something like that? But you can say that about all sectors. I mean, it's, um, you know, now the competition with uh, T-bill rates opposed to equity risk, right? But I think what's important, going back to your 40-year cycle thesis that you just mentioned, or comment, uh, last year, uh, bonds were down 18%, equities were down 17%. And it's the first time in 40 years you've seen funds do very poorly. And... Uh, 
you know, a lot of people don't know this, but um, January 1st, 2022, Mercer Group, which is an advisor to $15 trillion of global assets, um, they altered their 60-40 bond equity portfolio recommendation and went to a 5% weighting recommendation in precious metals because of bond risk and equity risk. And if you look at it, they're right. Because gold was at 1850, now it's at 1950. Bonds and equities were down. Now we had the capitulation in equities going into October, November of last year. A lot of it had to do with tax loss capitulation, and we've had this what I would call a bear market rally taking place, really driven by seven companies. I mean, you start looking at what's driven the equity markets to where they are, where people believe now we're in a new bull market. There's there's no breadth to that, and so. The bond market is, and the bond market right now, again, we have inverted yield curves. We've had that going for 14 months, and no one's worried that that is going to usher in a recession. And I think just in the last month, we're starting to see the consumer uh, uh, consumer um, um, weaknesses. And yet, people keep on talking about how strong the consumer is. But listen, interest rates, inflation, they're using up their savings function and uh, credit card debts, all-time highs, uh, missed payments on medical bills in the United States are, are increasing substantially. In Canada, two out of every three mortgage holders are now more concerned about, you know, making payments. Mm-hmm. And no one's worried about the consumer. It, it's just shocking that the narrative hasn't become um, ref- more reflected in the market. We're seeing it more. I mean, you saw, for example, we saw Macy's and we saw... Um, Dick's, uh, Dick's Sporting's good, down 33% yesterday. Uh, as they were saying on CNBC a moment ago, we've had 11 days in a row of Nike going down. So the consumer is starting to tighten up. And uh, the effect of higher interest rates and inflation. What I think is different in the States is they have the 30-year 2.5% mortgage. And so that's what's kept them strong as a consumer. One of the questions I keep on asking people, though, is who are the buyers of that 30-year product right. at a 2.5% yield? Now, again, a lot of it's pension funds, a lot of it's life codes and, and insurance companies and that, so they can ride that to maturity. But in the case of Silicon Valley, we all know what happened there, they got upside down and they had to sell. So you tell me what the principal value of a 30-year, 2.5% instrument is worth today. It's sure not worth par, that's for sure. Yeah. I would argue it's 30 cents in the dollar. It, we're at, certainly at a, a crux in the bond market here where there, I can see both arguments for a bullish case and a bearish case, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and I understand. I mean, I, what side of that coin do you do you kind of live in right now? Well, one of the basic rules of economics 101 is interest rates are also a function of risk. Mm-hmm. Okay. And no one ever talks about that anymore. Okay. Interest rates are dictated by the Fed. But global markets look after interest rates. And um, we all know that the BRICS meeting is just wrapping up here, and they just announced six new members. And so you start looking clearly at a movement of de-dollarization. And so the U.S. has benefited from being the reserve currency of the world for a long period of time. And with that, they've been enabled to issue debt to the global market at a cheaper rate. And so now you have a you know, U.S. deficit of $32 trillion, Fed balance sheet $8.5 trillion, which is another conversation we can have. And uh, you have interest rates where they are. The interest rate cost to the U.S. right now is greater than medical costs and military costs combined. That's just the interest payments on their debt. So my question would be, going back to the bond market and the movement or out of U.S. dollars or de-dollarization, is there a greater risk in the bond market in the United States, and therefore, will the world demand higher interest rates? 
I don't know if you saw today, but Turkey, for example, just raised their interest rates to 25% from 17.5% trying to beat inflation back. Well, their inflation rate went up to like 80%. Oh, I know. It it's, crazy. Ridi- it's, ri- it's crazy. <laughs> and, and Argentina, same thing. But my point being is that interest rates become a function of risk as well, right? Yeah. Uh, interesting. And, and so, you know, how are, how are, is your business been affected by this over the last year and a half? Uh I know that's a big question, you know. But, you know, it's well. You know what? I'll, I'll be honest with you. Last year was a very challenging year for the entire precious metal sector because everything we were talking about was taking place, but the U.S. interest rates went exponential. We had the f- biggest percentage change in interest rates in history, and the U.S. dollar exponentialized. Okay, so gold went down. Because again, the algos, U.S. dollar up, gold down, uh, took the U.S. dollar down. But if you look at gold in every other currency, it went higher. And that's one reason why we're seeing this movement by the BRICS to, to, st- to, to try to diversify their trades out of U.S. dollars. Because, if, for example, if you're in Turkey, going back to Turkey, um, you look what happened with, with uh, their debt denominated U.S. dollars when the Turkish lira collapsed. Mm-hmm. Yet, if you looked at gold in Turkish lira, it saved the investors. So being beholden as a trading country in the world to the U.S. dollar and the Fed policies and the mon- monetary and fiscal policies, you, your debt and your financial position as a country is, is challenged because the U.S. policy, U.S. dollar, dictates a lot of influence on you. And that's why there's a greater movement to transact outside of U.S. dollars because mm-hmm. it's been very painful for a lot of these countries. So going back to your question, you know, last year was one of those years going, okay, you know, gold, gold stocks went down significantly. And I think that's one reason why gold equities right now are, are completely disconnected from the fact that gold prices is where it is, is because people got hurt last year. Mm-hmm. And so the money flows went back into, you know, the thematic narrative stocks in America. And let's face it, I mean, you look at, Things like Coinbase, for example, which is the yeah, someone pa- paraphrases as the, the gold standard of crypto mining, mm-hmm. stock hit four hundred dollars a share, bottomed out at forty dollars, and it ran to one hundred and fifteen dollars a share here. So, you know, for investors in the last six months, there was a hundred percent plus gain on that. Well, now it's back to seventy-two dollars. But the point being is that people are are chasing the, the shiny objects once again, despite the significant losses over two years. Mm-hmm. And so we just don't have capital moving into our space because it's not att- attracting the opportunity for, for um, the opportunities are there in terms of value, but the price movement in the stocks has not, is not attracting people. So I, I obviously we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the mining and exploration space, but I I, I want to talk about bricks the, the, because I, it seems like you're really on top of things and what's those developments. You've obviously been paying attention to the conference. I, I'll be honest with you, I have not just because I've been running around town for the last three days. Uh, but like you, you come you, you come across as this is really this is really important developments here. So maybe let's open up that conversation. What this. Uh, BRICS conference and these new members are really, you know, what what is that narrative look like uh, for a global uh, global trade and uh, uh, potentially new currency coming on to the market for people to settle trade? Well, first of all, a lot of people don't know this, but BRICS has been around for like 15 years. It's the sure. 15th annual. But I think the BRICS arena has changed dramatically in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with the rise of China. And now, of course, if, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine war is, is feeling it as well. 
But you're seeing some moves that are taking place in the last three years that a lot of people just aren't paying attention to, which is a move away from uh, reserve currency of U.S. dollars. Um, for example, Saudi Arabia, who has always been a very, very good friend of America in the past. Uh, in the last three years, we've seen a lot of changes. Um, uh, and they, by the way, are one of the new members that's been invited into BRIC. Okay? Now, you have to remember, Saudi Arabia is the cornerstone of the petrodollar. Mm-hmm. Okay? And so, but what you're seeing now is Saudi Arabia is now starting to trade some of their oil in Chinese renminbi. Okay, and which is upset a lot. I mean, I remember the Democrats saying, "How is it that, you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to align themselves with China, and China is one of the adversaries of America?" But what's interesting is these are some of the, the subtle things you got to pay attention to. Is that Biden went to CMBS in Saudi Arabia a few months ago, and uh, he did the fist pump with MBS, and MBS kind of pulled the hand away. Mm-hmm. And the first thing Biden brought up with MBS was the uh, he wanted MBS to admit that he had. Uh, he had basically um, uh, um, was the was the leader behind the execution of Khashoggi, and uh, one of the people from uh, from America said that our intelligence tells us that you you basically gave the go ahead for that. Well, the response was, well, your intelligence also said that Saddam Hussein had the weapons of mass destruction, and they they didn't. But the point being is that. Um, they went there, and Biden went there largely to try to get um, Saudi Arabia to increase oil production to put down pressure on inflation. What happens a week later? They cut production by 2 million barrels at OPEC. So, again, if they're friends, it would have been a comedy of foes, not. Well, a week later, guess who arrives in Saudi Arabia? President Xi. Mm-hmm. President Xi arrives on the tarmac, fly by the jets with the colors of the Chinese flag. And so look at the shift of alignment taking place here. And again, the key point here is that Saudi Arabia has been a cornerstone of the petrodollar, and now they're starting to transact in Ramimbi, and now they're now they're looking now they're going to be invited in, or they have been invited into BRICS. So, the, the MBS is clearly the power person of the Middle East emerging, and he, well, who's he aligning himself with? And so, going back to this dollarization and the BRICS. You know, again, most people in the Western world don't know this, but last year and even this last quarter, record demand by Eastern Central Banks for gold because they're diversifying U.S. US dollars. Mm -hmm. And again, most people don't think of gold as this, but the three largest reserve currencies in the world are the U.S. dollar, the euro, and gold. And what's unique about gold is gold's the only reserve currency in the world that has no political attachment, no debt obligation, and no printing press. And these Eastern banks are buying it. Mm-hmm. So you can see the movement away from a U.S. dollar reserve currency, which it's always going to be a reserve currency, but it's getting diluted down. And so going back to the BRICS, BRICS represents, the, the six members represented 42% of the world's population, 26% of the world's GDP. But they're the growing population. You look at what's happening in India, for example. And uh, so they are no longer wanting to, to be beholden to the U.S. dollar and the U.S. policies, because the, the last year, for example, was very painful for a lot of these countries who had their debt in U.S. dollars. Yeah. I, it, this dynamic, this shifting dynamic is so intriguing. But I still, you know, just the news this week here at CAM of, you know, um, the, uh, the the mercenary that, you know, his plane had just crashed, and oh, that thing exploded in the sky, it was shot down. Mm-hmm. And then you have, a, you know, so that's the narrative out of Russia. There, there's reason to be concerned. We've seen this before. In China, we, 
you know, we've talked about the over leverage and high debt ratio in the United States. China blows the United States out of the water mm -hmm. in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so you you still have these issues, these these foreign issues as well. And so I guess I I can understand these countries wanting to get off the U.S. dollar. Mm -hmm. I, I can get I can understand why. But for the rest of the world, do you really want to be beholden to a currency that the two main power drivers behind it is an uh, authoritative Putin who you know will kill his foes <laughs> wherever he seems fit, mm -hmm. and an over leveraged communist party in China? Well, again, you're you're assuming that there's going to be a, a reserve currency of some sort coming out of BRICS. Well, and I'm not. Right? I don't want to say it's going to be a reserve currency, but why would you use that currency, knowing the risks behind well, the geopolitics? Well, of that, and again, that's a very good question. But the reality is, what they're referring to at the BRICS meetings right now is transacting in their own currencies, okay, outside of U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. So rather than let's say Argentina is buying buying goods out of out of uh, out of uh, India, for example. Rather than going through U.S. dollars, just doing direct. Okay, so that's one of the things they're talking about. But one of the things that's been talked about in the precious metals market is the, the some sort of new currency that has a gold backing, right. and that's been rumored for a while. And so a lot of people have been surmising that because all these eastern banks are big buyers of gold. Nothing has emerged like that yet. Um, but who's to say it's not going to? I don't know. All I know is that it's very clear that. The, there's a shift where people are wanting to transact outside of U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. And so, listen, I mean, China has their problems. I mean, the Evergrande, the, you know, the real estate market is, is upside down. It, there's going to be challenges. I mean, I, again, I think the U.S. consumer right now is just tapping out. I think, I think the recession narrative is just starting, starting to take place. So I think we have a global slowdown taking place. And again, going back to this, you know, free money for 10 years. I mean, global debt went from 200 to 300 trillion dollars at a time when global GDP uh, went up by 10 percent to 85 trillion dollars. Mm -hmm. so now that debt's gotten very expensive, and so we have a very leveraged system, not just in China but in the United States, Canada, and I think that these asset prices are starting to decline. And so, the, the problems in China. I mean, one of the things about China, though, is China can make the statement to their citizens. That um, you know we're we're in a recession because the Chinese, I'm sorry, the U.S. is putting all these restrictions on us, and they're trying to suppress our growth. And as long as he, as the people believe and and support President Xi, he he can get away with some some downturn there. Mm -hmm. Whereas U.S., if you have a recession coming, which I think is inevitable, um, going into an election period with a Fed balance sheet at eight, already eight and a half trillion dollars and a deficit at thirty-two trillion dollars. And lowering tax revenues, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, lot of um, negative uh, commentary that can, that can come into the U.S. Uh, stock market. Yeah. Uh, let's transition and talk about uh, the mining and exploration sector. Okay. And uh, in, 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 for a lot of us, you know, you know, sit at our desk and watch these markets, it has been pretty, pretty painful two years. Um, you know, and you mentioned last year was, was really tough. It, is this year any different? Because from us sitting at our own desk and looking at our own portfolios, it doesn't feel much different. In fact, maybe you could say it's, it feels a little bit worse than it was last year. But from where you sit, what is there a silver lining in 2023 that wasn't there in 2020? 
2022. Well, I'm going to agree with you about the fact that last year has, has been challenging. And, uh, you know, copper stocks have done very well. But that, again, going back to why copper stocks have done so well is this is a supply side issue and also the belief that there's going to be some stimulus coming out of China, okay, mm-hmm. and infrastructures, roads. Uh, so copper stocks have actually held up up to about a month ago quite well relative to the fact that copper is trading at 380, not down from a high of 475. Whereas gold hit all-time highs here about a month and a half ago, and the stocks didn't react. And when gold pulled back, the gold stocks pulled back you know, quite significantly here in the last three weeks. So, you know, I think we're bumping along the bottom on this. And, you know, I was talking to one of my corporate clients the other day, and, and he and I actually were both thinking the exact same thing. This is very similar to 2015, where the sector was abandoned, left for dead. I mean, we've gone through a horrific bear market from 2012 to 15, the worst I'd ever seen. And um, and then um, and then all of a sudden the psychology changed on gold and there was so much error in the gold stocks there were significant gains, and right now these stocks have been drifting, 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 and there's no capital coming into the space. And uh, then you tack on the fact that the algos have been, you know, algos follow trends and the algos have been constantly beating these things down as well. And so when the reversal of this takes place, there's a lot of error in it because a lot of people have given up in the sector. Again, they've left the sector. They've chased other sectors. Uh, In Canada, which is traditionally a Canadian investment uh, mining culture, it's very few people like myself in the business now who specialize in the sector. And so where we are right now, um, I'm still I'm still shocked to be honest with you that we haven't seen greater acceptance or realization that we are going into a downturn. Yeah. But like I said, in the last month we're starting to see more and more suggestions that things are tapping out and the economy is rolling over. And I think that will be the catalyst for the dollar to U.S. dollar to resume its downward slide, and uh, and that will perpetuate people into precious metals. You mentioned the 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 shift in 2015 away from you know not caring about precious metals, and then all of a sudden people started recognizing mm-hmm. its importance. What was it about 2015 that triggered that mentality change? I think 2015, um, part of it was the dollar, and and two, um, the, just the uncertainty. Uh, well. I, I think the dollar was a major catalyst there, yeah. and um, I mean, actually, quite honestly, I'm trying to go back in my mind because I just remember, <laughs> I just remember that was such a painful chapter, and uh, but again, what happened was gold rallied up significantly, and you know the stocks, you know, if you look at the tops in all these gold stocks, it was 2015-16, right? And then, then 2020 we had a big rally up, and since 2020 we've been really kind of going down. And, uh, and and let's face it. Also, I mean, the industry got caught with a lot of cost inflation as well, and we had a number of hiccups that uh, that hurt investors. And so, a lot of investors got very disenchanted with the poor performance of the companies, and they were thinking, okay, why is you know gold's at two thousand dollars, and these guys are still are having problems? And so, a lot of people left the sector once again. Yeah, uh, Amy, we published a, an episode last week. Uh, Talking about the discrepancies in, uh, in, in in the cost of producing gold mm-hmm. from the from the miners here. I mean, there's some companies doing really well, but a lot the big companies are not doing well. Their margins have been cut, and we're trying to figure out <clears throat> why their costs have gone up so much in you know in Q1 and Q2. 
Uh, and as you kind of work those numbers, what is like the driving force behind those rising costs? Well, again, it's um, I think the all outstanding cost now for the average is about thirteen fifty, and I mean, there's multiple reasons. I mean, energy, labor costs. Uh, we all know the supply chain issues from COVID, and there's still the the, the hangover of that. Um, and so those have been a lot a lot of the cost factors that have come into it. Um, like you, you talk to people who the miners in Australia, and their labor costs are through the roof. Right. And so that's one reason why I like some of these jurisdictions that may have some narrative challenges, but the cost structures are so much cheaper. Like in West Africa right now, we, you know, unfortunately, we have this Niger uh, narrative, which, by the way, coups are very common in West Africa. Yeah. And yet West Africa is the largest mine, gold mining district on the planet. And uh, there you can build mines on time, on budget. And uh, all outstanding costs are the lowest in the sector. And so, but again, you have to be willing to accept that there's going to be narrative. I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in Niger right now, and and uh, what people have to also understand is that one reason uh, why France and Germany and U.S. have uh, uh, army bases there is France also is protecting its its uranium supply because uh, France is largely powered by nuclear, and 35% of the uranium comes out of Niger, and so. You know, Arriva, which is one of the uh, uranium companies, it's business as usual. Yeah. Despite this, all the narrative that you know, <coughs> democracy is being overthrown in, in, in Niger, the reality is the military leader that's, that ha- has come forward is, is basically saying, look, you guys aren't doing enough as a government to protect against the terrorist groups that are, that are uh, uh, running illegal trade through this area. Yeah. And that's a problem all through West Africa. They have a common... Um, battle against these terrorist groups. A lot of them came out of Libya when Gaddafi was removed. And so that's the real battle. But the reality is gold mining is absolutely imperative for the economies of West Africa and to the governments. And so the industry's business as usual. But the narrative, you know, can be challenging. So my point being is that costs are much lower in places like that because of cheaper labor costs. Um, whereas you go to places like Nevada and in yeah. Canada and Australia, you know, that's, that, that's been the creep. The other thing, too, is that, you know, there's just been no big projects being put into production for a long period of time. And that's why Newmont has have bought Newcrest. They're doing that for growth because they have no growth. Uh, Barrick, you know, uh, Bristow has always proud himself, prided himself on having tier one assets. And yet his, his production is going down. His costs are going up. And so these are the big boys, right? Well, I mean, are we in that are we in that type of a cycle for uh, the big boy producers? If you are looking at making acquisitions and and growing your company, is it cheaper to acquire than it is to explore right now? Well, first of all, the, the big companies aren't explorers. That's just not that's just not part of the, what they're good at. Um, and um, we aren't there yet because again, a lot of these guys have been of the opinion that they're just going to get, you know, they're going to keep the production, they're trying to get the costs in line, just show, you know, get themselves in great financial shape. Mm-hmm. And the sector has never been in better financial shape. I mean, a number of my companies, which are senior mid- mid-tiers, are, you know, cash positive, debt-free, paying 3%, 4% dividend yields. And the sector has never been in such a great position. Mm. When it comes to, um, you know, M&A and acquisitions, I mean, you know, Ian Telford told me years ago, uh, he was from Goldcorp, the one thing about the mining industry is you have to acquire to um, to uh, acquire to just maintain your production, and you have to acquire to grow. Yeah. But there's no real tensions in the boardroom. 
I mean, in the past cycles, when a takeover like a Newcrest or a, um, or a um, Great Bear taken over, when that would take place, all of a sudden you'd see bump ups in other takeover targets. You know, in anticipation maybe that he's next. We aren't seeing any of that anymore because again, there's nobody paying attention to the sector. Yeah. And, you know, quite honestly, I think we mentioned before this interview, I don't want the M&A to start right now. Yeah, this is fascinating. I, wanted, I want to make sure we talk about this. On That's a different approach to M&A right now than I've heard. Because I keep on asking companies, I mean, valuations are so cheap. If you have cash in the bank and you want to grow, like, isn't this a great time to start looking at some of those assets and bring in the books? And the other side is where you sit and where you don't want M&A right now. And so let's open that up. Why do you not want M&A right now? Well, and for a number of reasons. Uh, just the value of the developers and small producers uh, on a P2Net basis is just so undervalued. And I was on a panel at our conference um, in Palm Springs we held, our Canada Courts Genuity uh, Conference. And John, Jonathan Goodman was on the panel as well. And he had the exact same comment as I. And that being is that some of the developers and small producers that have growth platforms are trading at 0.2 times NAV. Yeah. Whereas you look at you know the big caps and some of the mid tiers, they're trading at 0.81 times NAV. And so you know we've been helping these companies build and grow for you know through these tough times, and uh, to see them taken over at these discounts. I mean, these management teams have worked very, very hard, and have been and the companies we're involved with have been very successful, but unrecognized in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. So that's the main reason. The other thing right now is there's no real tensions in the boardrooms. I mean, the M&As, we haven't really seen a lot. The Newcrest is the last one we've seen, but there's not a lot of M&As taking place because there's no sense of urgency. And so you want tension in the boardrooms before, we, to, before this should get going because yeah. then you have competition. You know, these merger of equals, I get that, but when you have a company training at 0.2 times NAV and someone's training at 1 times NAV, you know, they should be buying these things right now. Yeah. But as major shareholders of the, these companies, we don't want to see it happen now because it's just too cheap. What about the earlier side of the of the mine cycle and the exploration side? I know you, you dabble more you know, in, in those later stage developers, producer type <clears throat> positions. But what about the exploration side where there's just the, the people who are paying attention have just been screaming out for years and years and years about consolidating and what is your position on consolidation? Is it needed in this market? Do we need fewer exploration companies? Well, you know, everyone talks about that. And, you know, in principle, yes. Mm-hmm. Economics, yes. You try to get human nature to do that. You've got somebody who has the belief of what their asset's worth, and they're getting a paycheck out of that company. And let's face it, the, the explorers, uh, they're running on ether right now because there's just no money going into exploration. And so... To try to convince three parties to come together, which makes sense, for example, put together diversified exploration companies, well, someone's got to leave the podium. And after after having weathered through tough markets, who wants to leave, right? Right. So, you know, merger mergers are very complicated because it's it's to deal with egos and power, right? Mm-hmm. Assets are assets, and if you look at it from a purely objective perspective, it makes sense. But to get it done is extremely difficult. So I, I think I asked you a while ago, like the silver lining of 2023, mm-hmm. and you you get a lot of data. You have a ton of conversations, a uh, ton of intel in this sector. Uh, you know, not that you can. You, 
you're, I, I know you're not able to like be specific in some of the things that you're seeing in conversations you're having, but what is the silver lining in general right now? Like, what are, are we? Give us a reason to believe why we're starting to get out of this uh, this rut we've been in all summer. Okay, <laughs> there's, there's a multiple answers to this. Um, first of all, my macroeconomic thesis hasn't changed. Uh, and, and yet, it's it's interesting. You know, people are saying now that soft landing in the U.S., no recession, everything's fine, and yet we're seeing obvious signs of decline. And yet, the narrative out there is still is consumer strong, everything's fine. You know, what's really kept the U.S. strong has been you know the the, the twenty thirty year mortgages at two and a half percent. People locked in, so they aren't being affected by all this. But you're starting to see the cracks in the consumer. So, and, and it's a global phenomenon. As I mentioned, you look at global GDP and you look at the debt levels in the world, nothing's changed in our thesis. So I think what's happening now is I think finally people are starting to feel the economy. You're hearing the narrative of people talking about how expensive things are and how they can't keep on spending the way they're spending. And that recession narrative, I think, is starting to become something that people are so it's socially acceptable to talk about a bit more than it was and so again i'm not trying to wish ill upon the economy of any shape or form i'm just looking at common sense sure i mean you've got credit card debt at all-time highs despite record interest rates i mean what does it tell you about a consumer you know 30 percent of people on their medical payments in the states are behind you look at mortgages in canada you look at the costs of the costs of things it's it, all the indicators are suggesting the consumer is trying to roll over here, and so the silver lining is is that you know I think the U.S. dollar is very similar to where it was in late 2002, and then the bear market in U.S. dollar, the Dixie, uh, ensued, and it went from at that at time I think from 198 or something down to 74, at a time when gold went from 300 to 900 dollars, and they came down, then it went to 2,000 dollars in 2012. So I think we're just on the cusp of people getting more concerned about their U.S. dollars. But how does that, it, so if, if it has that effect of raising the gold price, if people finally come back to precious metals on a wide scale, uh, and let's say gold does make a new all-time high, I firmly believe it will, and I think it's, I think it's going to happen sooner than later. That's just kind of where I stand. But is that move in gold going to, raise the tide that lifts all boats in the in the equities and the gold equities well again as i keep on saying to people you know we're in a, a situation where we have the autocracies versus democracies mm -hmm. and the autocracies are the BRICS nations for example and we all know what the autocracy central banks are doing right now they're buying gold and they're not they're diversifying in u.s dollars and so the swing play is going to be when the u.s investor starts coming in because, for example, yesterday, gold was up $20, whatever it was, and the gold ETFs in the United States were down five tons. Hmm. Last Friday, gold was up $15. They were down eight tons. So the dribble of sale, selling out of the gold ETFs continues out of the United States. And so we're monitoring that very closely because when the U.S. investor comes back, that's when we're going to start seeing the movement. And you know, we're starting to see the gold stocks showing greater strength in the doldrums of summertime when no one's around. Right. And so, you know, what's going to draw people back? Price performance. That's why people, you know, you, you look at things like Carvana, which was $200 a share, hit $3 a share. <laughs> Apollo did a restructuring in their debt facility. Stock went to $45 a share. That's price movement. And that's why people are still playing in that arena. 
Now, te technically, I think that company will ultimately end up being bankrupt. But that's what's driving markets. And we have no price movement in our space right now because there's no money flows coming in. You know, a lot of people don't know this, but the market cap of the entire gold equity globally is less than that of Home Depot. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't take a lot of money to move into it. And so, you know, one of the things I keep on impressing upon people, and, you know, I hate using the word over, over and over again, but narrative economics is what drives money flows. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, now the new narrative, of course, is AI, you know, the most recent being being uh, NVIDIA, which right. just, just blew it out of the water and stock hit $500 uh, 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 last night trading. But narrative is driving everything. And we have no narrative towards our space. And no one even thinks about gold and gold equities. And so narrative is key, key, key to draw, drawing money into it. And price performance is going to draw, draw narrative in, like in 2003. All of a sudden, you know, we were buying all these gold stocks in 2002, and no one was paying attention. And I was like, you know, I remember talking to some of my coworkers and going, isn't anybody paying attention? These things are so cheap. Right. All of a sudden, they turned up and, you know, they're up two, 300% in two years. And all of a sudden, they started performing and the narrative came. And we just have had no price performance, despite some big successes. I mean, I look at, you know, Great Bear taking over at $30 a share. You would have thought that would have um, created some money going into exploration because the reward was so big. You look at Philo's discovery down in the Fakunga district. I mean, huge success, right? And um, and you would have thought that would have ignited more exploration money going into the copper explorers and that. But we have seen none of that because mm -hmm. there's just no money coming into the space still. Yeah. So the the narrative shift. Uh, do you perceive it to when it happens? Do you perceive it will be more of an organic shift, or you know, how does that, uh, I guess, I don't know, how does that, how does the shift happen in the narrative? And what well, happened last time, I guess? I, that's maybe well, that's a better question. Again, I, I think what it is, is, you know, you know, one of the things I say to my U.S. clients is, okay, you have all your assets denominated in U.S. dollars. Your real estate's in U.S. dollars, your bonds are in U.S. dollars, your stocks are in U.S. dollars, okay? Your portfolio is in U.S. dollars. And so what insurance policy do you have in case, if the U.S. dollar starts to declining? And none of them even think of that, mm -hmm. right? And so, again, it, it comes back to attention towards the sector. And I think, you know, it's, you know, and we touched upon this before this interview, I think one of the things that could be a game changer for the sector is, you know, the initiatives of the World Gold Council bringing out a gold back, I'll call it a gold back uh, crypto, but it's a gold back stable coin. And a lot of people in the industry are, are unaware of, of what's taking place there. But, you know, in a lot of ways, we hate talking about Bitcoin, but Bitcoin st stole the thunder from potential gold buying because Bitcoin was independent of, of central banks and the establishment, right. and it was a fixed number. And so, you know, it was a digital product that people could buy. Well, and now, you know, Bitcoin had a good rally because all of a sudden BlackRock is embracing it with an ETF. And so Bitcoin had a rally, Coinbase, MacroStrategies had a rally. What was interesting is uh, Larry Fink from, from Blackstone, BlackRock that is, um, was being interviewed. And prior to getting into the ETF conversation about his ETF on Bitcoin, he actually mentioned gold. And he said, you know, gold traditionally, you know, outside of fiat currencies has been a, has been a performing asset you go to. But the problem is it's difficult to buy and it's difficult to store. Well, the World Gold Council has been working on this initiative for over two years, and you know I'm going to get an update from Randy Smallwood, the chair of, of uh, World Gold Council, tomorrow. But you know, you look at a product 
that's a crypto product that has 100% backing by gold that sits in the vault of either London, Singapore, or in, in, in Switzerland. And so you, if you could buy a digital product that's a physical gold that you actually have in your envelope, okay, and it's 100% backed by something tangible, is that an attractive instrument to own? Because look I, at people. I, that's how that's how uh, that's how I buy gold. Yeah. Uh, with uh, uh, by no means is this a, a you know, promotion for the company, but there's a company. Um, uh, uh, is it Atmex out of Oklahoma City? Uh, but they have a one gold platform, which is how I buy my precious metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's it's a digital app. And you, you you buy gold, and you know. It, Basically, they store, they have the gold. Everything in that application in your folder is, is backed by gold. And so see, see, a lot of people don't aren't aware of those type of products. But here's right. the here's the issue, and this is why it's taken a long time because World Gold Council did a collaboration with LBMA because one of the things you have to have is you have to have a hundred percent authenticity of gold. Sure. I don't know if you saw, but a few months ago, Trafigaro lost five hundred million dollars because of counterfeit nickel. Right, so you have to make sure when you come out with the product, especially if you're going to be World Gold Council representing the gold, gold uh, product, that when you're buying it, it's a hundred percent pure, and you know where it is and stored properly. And so, when this comes out, I think that could be a big narrative shift because, again, going back to to Fink making the comment about gold, but it's difficult to buy, difficult to store. All of a sudden, you come up with a product you can buy, and it's basically your, your ability to buy a reserve currency. Mm-hmm. It's independent of debt obligations and printing presses. Everyone talks about the finite amount of, of Bitcoin. Well, gold production last few years has gone up by 2% a year. It's a fixed number. And a lot of the gold is tucked away in vaults. Right. So when it comes to supply, there is a very, you know, above ground is above ground. But all of a sudden, if you have a medium to buy gold uh, digitally uh, and you know, if you're a U.S. dollar asset holder, you know, you could see where this would be, you know, a, a weighting you want to put yourself into. And again, going back to Mercer, who went to a 5% recommended weighting on gold, you know, you've guys like, you know, Ray Dalio make comments. If you don't own yeah. gold, you don't know the history of fiat currencies. You, recently, you have Stanley Druckenmiller talking about his his trade right now is short U.S. dollars. And one way of doing that is buying gold. And in my view, he's one of the best investors of all time. And so he makes those statements, and no one's paying attention. Right, right. Uh, so we are hopefully getting out of here the summer doldrums. I'm going to try to wrap this up, Cam, because I know you got a busy day, and uh, I've taken up a lot of your time. But um, you know, we're, we're at the end of summer here, which is good. Uh, summer doldrums are, but we're getting into a seasonality here. I mean, uh, we've already seen a bump uh, in the precious metals price of gold and silver. I mean, uh, is uh, you know how. Do you, do you expect more people, are gonna, the, the sector is going to get a, more active as people come back to the office and, uh, and that seasonality and precious metals hits? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to one of my head traders in Toronto yesterday about this. And right now it's all algos. Yeah. The physical buyers aren't around because everyone, everyone's away and everyone's kind of given up in the sector. So we've had this, this, this almost like a Chinese water torture, drip, drip, drip <laughs> on the equities. And so... You know, I think when people come back to work and they and they start seeing the fact that gold's still at 1950 here, and and we are starting to see the economics that I keep on saying of recession start to begin a narrative. I think there's going to be a bit on the gold stocks, and you know, you, you take away the algos, and the algos start turning positive rather than dripping negative. You know, 
there's some significant re-rate opportunity in a lot of these companies. Uh, seasonality, I mean, I look at seasonality, but I look at the big picture. I'm a macro thinker, and I'm looking at a, a shift that's slowly taking place here. And I think, you know, when, when the realization that gold as a reserve currency is starting to get more and more attention and the, and the U.S. investor comes back to that, to the recognition that it's something they should be having, having as part of their portfolio, I think we're going to see significant money flows come in. And again, the market cap is less than Home Depot, the entire sector. It's not going to take a lot of money to come into the equities. No. Uh, that would be a great time for it to happen, though. Let's hope so. Let's <laughs> hope right. so. Uh, Cam, thanks so much for your time and welcoming into your, uh, into your office. Uh, I look forward. I'll see you in a couple of weeks, sounds like. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, thanks again. Appreciate uh, all the insight, and uh, hopefully we can do it again and, Absolutely. Uh, down the road. Absolutely. Anytime. I'd love to. All right. Thanks, Trevor. Yeah. All right, everybody. That's a wrap here this week uh, from Vancouver. Uh, I'm going to get on a plane and go home. Have yourself a great weekend, and we'll be back Monday morning with the morning briefing. Be well. The information presented should not be considered investment advice. Mining Stock Daily and its affiliates are not responsible for any loss arising from any investment decision in connection with the material presented herein. Please do your own research or speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.